Welcome to the Art of Composing podcast. I'm John Brantingham, and together we're going to unravel the mysteries of musical composition. If you've ever wanted to know how music works, then stick around. This episode is brought to you by the Art of Composing Academy. Whether you're an absolute beginner looking to build a foundation or you're a veteran composer looking in to fill in some gaps, the Art of Composing Academy will give you that web of knowledge that's really required to feel confident in the kinds of music that you want to write. So if you're ready to connect the musical dots, head over to artofcomposing.com free and sign up for the free beginner's composing course. Our guest today is Samuel Adler, Professor Emeritus at the Eastman School of Music, where he taught from 1966 to 1995, um, and since 1997 has been a member of the composition faculty at the Juilliard School of Music, although he recently retired from there as well. Dr. Adler has studied under some of the greatest composers of the 20th century, including Walter Piston, Paul Hindemith, and Aaron Copland. He's composed over 400 published works, including five operas, six symphonies, 12 concerti, nine string quartets, um, and it may be more now, actually, I think, uh, five oratorios, and many other, many other works. And, of course, he's the author of several books, including The Study of Orchestration, which is widely considered the leading textbook on orchestration. So, Dr. Adler, welcome to the Art of Composing podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Great. Um, now, the focus of this podcast and my website is really about learning uh, the art of composition. That's kind of like where I'd like to start. Um, mm -hmm. Throughout all your years of teaching, what have you seen as the most beneficial activities composers can do to really further their craft? Well, in the first place, I think a composer should play an instrument. That always uh, helps greatly. Uh, singing, of course, is always good, but... Um, concentrate on an instrument. Uh, also, if you love to sing, that's great. That also helps. And start at the very earliest possible time in one's life. Uh, I started the violin when I was seven, and I've never regretted it for a day. Uh, also, uh, be sure, right away, as soon as you are knowledgeable at all, uh, Start the study of harmony, counterpoint, um, analysis, and everything, and try to get the teacher as early as possible, because it's very difficult to do anything alone. Uh, there are a lot of people, I guess, who will say, well, I can do better by myself. Uh, I don't think so. I think this is too complicated, too complex a situation. Um, and you have to know so much about music in order to create some. The other thing I would very much urge every young composer to do is to get very familiar with the main core uh, or corpus uh, of music that has been created. And I mean as far back as medieval times. Mm. If you can possibly listen and analyze and read as much music as possible. Now, if you uh, play an orchestral instrument, I would suggest that you try to get into an ensemble as much or as early as possible, and also to play chamber music on the side, because there is so much music, and you can learn so much from every period of musical creation. Wow. 
So do you see young composers making uh, the same kinds of mistakes in, in learning their craft? Well, I mean, everybody makes mistakes. Look, when I look at my early compositions, uh, I well, I'll tell you a story. When I was 15, I played, I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, and I played in the Worcester Philharmonic since I was 13 years old. And uh, when I was 15, I wrote an orchestral piece. This was during the Second World War, and it was called Epitaph to the Young American Soldier. Well, it was played by the Philharmonic and got reviews all over, because after all, this was a youngster writing a piece being played by an orchestra. Uh, Even the New York Times had a short uh, quip about it in there. Well, I heard the day after the performance, two days after the performance, from Mills Music, which was one of the largest publishers in New York at the time. And the fellow who was the head of it, whose name was Max Stark, asked me to come to New York. Well, <laughs> I mean, this is fantastic. At 15, a major publisher asks you to come. So they sent me a ticket. I took a train to New York, and they took me out to lunch with all kinds of uh, all great composers, such such as Morton Gould and Leroy Anderson, and uh, uh, at that time, um, I think uh, somebody, a couple of other great composers were there, um, and uh, we went to lunch. And after lunch, we went back to the uh, main headquarters, and Mr. Stark said to me. Here's a contract. Now, you can sign it because you're underage. Have your dad sign it, and we will publish everything you write from now on. Well, I mean, my future was a you brilliant said, one, yeah. already guaranteed. So I went home. My father, who was also a composer, and uh, he was a cantor and wrote a great deal of liturgical, excellent liturgical music, he said, I'm not going to sign this. I said, what? This is making my career for the rest of my life. He said, look, if you look at your music that they will publish now, five years from now, you're going to regret it because you, you will see that this is not the kind of music that you want to be known for. Well, I was so angry, you have no idea. <laughs> However, uh, my father persisted. And they published one piano piece, which I keep on my shelf so that I can see that my father was right. Wow. Because it is horrible. But, you know, that's, I thought it was a masterpiece at the time. Yeah. So there you are. So at, at what point did you realize or feel that you got to the point where you were ready to be publishing your works and you're not going to be embarrassed of them? Well, uh, of course, <laughs> that, again, is, is a problem, because when I went to Boston University, which I did my undergraduate work there, my teacher, uh, in theory, was Robert King, who uh, was a famous publisher of brass music, Robert King Music. Well, uh, he encouraged me to write brass music. And, of course, I wrote a piece a day in those days, you know, so I wrote brass music, and he published it all. Well, I'm sorry to say that some people still know me only by that early brass music. 
and I had a girlfriend who was a horn player, so I wrote a horn sonata for her, and I hate to tell you, but it's my most performed piece still. Wow. Now, I'm not embarrassed by it, but I know that it isn't as good as I could have done. Yeah. Um, so you've um, obviously had some amazing teachers in your past. Yes, I mean, I uh, Aaron Copeland, Walter Piston, Paul Hindemith. Are there any like golden nuggets that they gave you that, that you feel made a huge difference on the way you thought about music or pursued your career? Oh, yes, they all did. Uh, Piston, who was very a very impersonal man, uh, actually uh, did not teach very well because he taught by sarcasm. You know, he would <laughs> he would say, uh, for instance, the first piece I brought in, uh, well, he assigned. There was no such thing as a private lesson in those days. You were in a class of fifteen, and he called on you and and you played your piece, or he played it with you if uh, we were both fast, bad pianists, so he played one hand, I played the other. <laughs> and uh, uh, he would say, uh, when we finished, he said, you know, Adler, uh, this piece sounds like a cross between Leroy Anderson and Morton Gould on their worst days. <laughs> well, of course, what does that mean? You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. that just lays you flat. And uh, so I went home, and I couldn't write for two weeks. I mean, I was stymied. So I uh, came in two weeks later, and he called on me, and I said, Mr. Pist, I, I just couldn't write anything. So he said, well, stay after class. And I stayed after class, and, I, and uh, uh, he, uh, uh, he said, look, uh, you haven't written anything for two weeks. We didn't take you because you were some brilliant theory student or contrapuntalist. We took you because you were a hotshot composer at Boston University. And I said, well, I just couldn't write anything because you didn't like my first piece. He said, well, what are you talking about? He said, well, uh, what did I say? I said, you, you said it was a cross between Leroy Anderson and Morton Gould on their worst days. And he said, what's wrong with them? They make a lot of money. <laughs> you know, fun. that's... Uh, now, uh, with Hindemith, you had to write a, a new piece for every single lesson. And he would throw it out and would write it over again. And, you know, it sounded like Matistamala, I mean, like a great masterpiece. And pretty soon, you got into the style, and, of course, you only wrote like what he would like, you see. And um, so you you were completely stymied in that style. And I wrote like a little Paul Hindemith for a very long time mm. because it was inculcated into you. And it was actually a good thing. One, we asked him, or somebody asked him one day, why he made us write like, like his style. Uh, and he answered with a beautiful quote. And that is, he asked, how did Bach learn how to write? Did he go to a music school or a conservatory? He said, no. He went as an apprentice when he was eight years old to his uncle or cousin or somebody, mm -hmm. and he copied his music. And after one year, the uncle got sick and said, you write the chorale prelude for Sunday. And what style do you think he wrote it in? His uncle's style, because that's the style he knew. 
and the next year he wrote a cantata in the same style. Now he said, Bach had a great musical personality of his own, so he took his uncle's style and put his own personality on it, so he had the technique, and now he realized himself, and he got to be the great composer. If you have any personality, which I doubt you have, he said, <laughs> uh, uh, you, you, you could take my technique and make a great composer out of yourself. And that was a very important statement, you know? Yeah. And now with Copeland, he was a fantastic teacher. I think of all the teachers I've had, he was the best. Because he would show you, identify some kind of weakness or mistake or wrong chord or something like that. And instead of, uh, like Hindemith, putting the right chord, he would say, go home and do it. And you learn more by worrying. He said that this is wrong, so something must be wrong. And you tried very hard to correct it. And this was a terrific uh, way of teaching. Wow. Um, so that's about the teachers. Yeah, that's no, that's that's great information. What? How do you feel then the role of the teacher is after having so many years of teaching yourself? The composition teacher is like a midwife. You know, he can't have the baby, but he can uh, help along, and that's the way I've always felt. Uh, you have to always try to live into the style or the kind of music that the student is writing. And every student is writing something differently, especially today. Mm -hmm. We don't have one style, uh, you know, superimposing on every other style. And so, therefore, it's very difficult these days to teach composition. You can help. You can help very carefully uh, guide this into the right direction. And that's what I've always tried to do. And I've always got, gotten very close to my students, and I'm very happy to say uh, that they have uh, been very loyal to me, all the hundreds of students I've had. Wow. Because I think I've helped them uh, in that way, and I've also shown them you know how how teaching can be effective. Yeah, at least I hope so. Has it has teaching significantly affected how you write your own music? That's a hard question. You know, um, it certainly has, and many times I've uh, looked at other people's music and seen certain things that I thought I could do better. And uh, uh, that has also influenced me. By studying a lot of music, uh, one gets the idea of what, what, what one could do better. Uh, and uh, I don't think I've been influenced by my students' works. Uh, and I've tried not to impose any style on them. Mm. Um, how do you see how things have changed with technology. I mean, obviously, 2016, the, the, what a composer, composer's tools seem to be drastically different. Have you noticed major changes? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, the most wonderful thing is that you, you don't have to 
uh, kill your eyes uh, because you have, uh, you know, Sibelius and Finale and things like that, that make scores much more readable. Mm -hmm. uh, that, I think, is the main thing. Uh, technology can only go so far. You know, I, I can tell by looking at a score whether that composer has composed with the computer. Mm. You know, uh, just uh, you have delete on the computer and you have repeat on the computer. Yeah. And much of the uh, minimal music is not as good as uh, Philip Glass or uh, any of the, the, the great composers of minimal music, John Adams or... Uh, you know, uh, any of those people. Uh, but uh, the problem is that uh, it's too easy to do. And therefore, I dislike these people that call themselves artists because they can write a melody on the computer. Mm. I mean, you take uh, a man like Steve Reich, who's just having his 80th birthday. He's gone through a lot of different phases <laughs> including yeah. the phase music uh, to to get where he is now, and um, he hasn't done it because he used the computer. Yeah, uh, I mean, I I'm computer challenged. I'm not proud of it, but that's just it. Uh, and I still have to see my score as it's written in my own hand before it's put on the computer. So then, what is your process normally for composing? Well, I, I compose, I sketch. I start with sketches. And I always do short score, whether I'm writing for a violin solo or whether I'm writing for a large orchestra. And then, to me, orchestration is a second composition. I, I don't start out with a huge page that I have to fill. Wow. And I think that's very important. I mean... Uh, I wrote a, an orchestration book by default, actually, because uh, at Eastman, uh, two of my colleagues and myself, uh, Joe Schwant and Warren Benson and myself, sat down one day and said, look, we can't use that other book that we were using anymore mm -hmm. uh, because it doesn't really talk about orchestration. And, you know, I know my book is very long, especially the new edition, you know, has almost a thousand pages yeah. and people ask why is it so big well i i think it talks about orchestration it doesn't just talk about each instrument which it must of course but then it also challenges you to think about the orchestra and and i feel that any composer should want to do that instead of just being superficially acquainted with the instruments yeah, in the in the book you talk about mental hearing, being able to hear the the sounds of the instruments and all their different ranges That's right. and how they connect. That's right. How do you go about building up that skill? Oh well, uh, in, in the first place, you study scores. I mean, you study the great orchestrators of the past and present, and there have been many. You know, people say, oh, Beethoven orchestration, not so good, and uh, uh, Weingartner and uh, Mahler had to change it. Well, they had to change it perhaps uh, because of the bigger halls and things like that. Mm -hmm. But Beethoven's basic orchestration is very solid. 
And I would say the same thing about Schumann, who gets a bad rap about his orchestration. That's the way he heard it. Yeah. And, and now that we play the original again, it sounds much better than the, the Mahler arrangements of them. Yeah. Wow. You know? And so therefore, study scores, I mean, those, those Bach um, uh, orchestral works are so rich with all kinds of colors that is almost unbelievable that he had very little experience with an orchestra. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like uh, it was just more, you know, gut feeling and firsthand experience. But right, yeah, and his ear, his way, ear, yeah. you know. I mean, Bach had the greatest ear of perhaps any other composer. Yeah. And then uh, you also look at, at things like um uh, medieval and Renaissance music, there's some wonderful things, especially for instance, the Gabrieli uh, brass pieces. I mean, that's what a composer should study in order to be able to use a brass section. Now, if you were just starting off as a young composer, getting into orchestration, how would you, how would you pursue it? Where, how would you build up your skills? Well, you know, um, you, today, uh, young composers have more chances than they did in my time to hear their pieces. I mean, orchestras have reading sessions. Uh, many schools, I mean, all the schools that I've taught at, uh, North Texas, uh, Eastman and Juilliard, uh, they have reading sessions of every orchestra piece that person writes. So that uh, uh, there's no excuse for not knowing uh, what an orchestra sounds like for most young composers. Of course, if you live in, you know, Fairbanks, Alaska, you do have an orchestra there, but you don't have as much exposure as you would in New York City. Mm. But still, you have scores, you have recordings. Everything today is recorded. You know, you go to iTunes and you hear the most obscure pieces mm -hmm. that that have been recorded. The Naxos catalog is 500,000 pieces. I mean, that's, you know, imagine uh, when Beethoven was young, uh, what could he do except play pieces on the piano, which was a wonderful education, by the way, but uh, we don't want to go through that anymore. Now we can hear anything. And, you know, I mean, for instance, my father... Uh, who was uh, educated uh, uh, in in Germany uh, before the First World War and right after. You know, uh, between Germany and France, there was such a gap uh, in the Rhine River that he never, he never heard, and this was in the early, 19, uh, early 20th century, he never heard a piece by Debussy or Ravel. Wow. And both of them were alive. Wow. That's that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, but that's the way it was. Do you um, do you see any new trends emerging in in orchestration practice? I don't really know. No. I mean, I hear good orchestration. I hear a lot of bad orchestration. As a matter of fact, a lot of the people, especially the Europeans, over orchestrate. I mean, it, it just you can't hear anything because there's so much going on. And that's not the way to orchestrate. You know, I mean, uh, there are some great orchestrators like Dutilleux or somebody like that, or the English. The English know how to orchestrate. Yeah. But many of the, of the 
I think French composers, for instance, and some of the German composers, and some of the Nordic composers that are all very good composers, but they use the orchestra so uh, with with such huge power that it uh, it kills itself, you know. Yeah. So, what do you consider then to be good orchestration? Well, transparency is one important thing, and the other thing is. Um, to let the orchestra uh, choirs sound, you know, so that it doesn't all sound like a big mishmash. And, I mean, there's so many good examples of orchestration. Uh, you know, Stravinsky and Debussy and uh, Ravel and Hindemith and, and uh, Copeland especially, uh, especially the Americans, uh, knew how to orchestrate better than anybody. Copeland, Piston, Sessions, Bill Schumann, uh, you know, uh, Ned Roram, all these guys, uh, Sam Barber, excellent orchestrators. And we should learn from them, actually. Um, now, in the in the orchestration book, you, you kind of lay out orchestration as um, foreground, middle ground, and background. Right. Do, you, do you think of that when you're composing, or do you uh, just yes, let I the do. ideas come? No, no. Well, I mean, the ideas came before I orchestrated. Mm-hmm. Those are compositional ideas. Not, and then you have to sort them out when you present them in the orchestral version. Because it's very important that the foreground needs to be a foreground, you know. Yeah. And that's that's what I just said about some of the uh, contemporary, some of the great contemporary composers who don't orchestrate as well as it, they could. Because I think it's important to have, uh, you know, that kind of division in your mind when you're orchestrating. Yeah. Um, now uh, the. The world of online composition, which is kind of where I feel like I live, um, and a lot of people live because they're not, you know, they're not at a big school. It's kind of become the, the, the place to get your education if you can't go to a university and, and get taught there or find a teacher locally. People post excerpts from their music asking specific questions or, you know, asking for feedback and things like that. But, um, yeah, we're just curious if uh, if you do have any experience with these groups, or if you even were aware. No, I'm not. I'm afraid. I, I'm, as I told you, I'm pretty challenged as far as I, I do email and things like that. But that's about it. Uh, I yeah. think you know um, that it's. I guess it's very good to have you know contacts about orchestration, but I think it's a little dangerous because you know somebody likes something or doesn't like something, uh, that's not enough uh, to comment on an orchestration. You know, Mm -hmm. the the thing is, why do you like it? Why don't you like it? What doesn't work? And I think, you know, um, it's a little dangerous to get um, a democratic point of view. I love democracy, and I think we have the greatest country because of it, but I don't like democratic views on something uh, because they usually come from people who are not as well or uh, as well educated as they should be. What's next for you? I mean, you've retired now from teaching effectively. Um, I'm still writing. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. I assume. Yeah. Are you traveling the country? Are you um, 
just kind of st- yeah. sticking around where you're at? No, I uh, I promised my wife instead of three trips a, a month, only one trip a month. <laughs> you know, because you could you could go all over the place, and uh, I have done that. Uh, but now, um, you know, I'm getting a little older, but uh, I'm feeling great, so that's fine. But I'd like to do a lot of work on. I just finished my memoirs, which is, I think, a good thing to have behind you. And uh, I I want to write a little bit more music. I have quite a few commissions, and that makes me happy. Good. Well, um, just, do you yeah. have any last advice for, for composers? Keep writing. That's the most important thing. And, and keep learning. You know, Jacques Barzun, who was the provost of uh, Columbia University and one of the brightest, most wonderfully bright people uh, in our, in the 20th century and into the 21st. He died when he was 100 years old. Uh, he wrote a book and he said, the most important part of education and what education should really teach successfully is how to be a student and to be anxious to be a student all your life. That's how I feel. And that's the way I think every composer should feel. You should never uh, stop getting the latest scores and also, on the other hand, uh, study as much of the old scores so that you're always en courant, you know, never saying, oh, well, I know it all and I don't have to do anything. Well, I think I know a lot of music and, you know, I've been a conductor, so I've conducted hundreds and hundreds of pieces, but I still learn something every day by looking at music. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, I'm sure everybody's just really excited to hear the episode and, um, yeah, I'd just like to... Well, what, you uh, can you tell me something about this episode? Yeah, about- so... Um, the, the podcast is really, it's called the art of composing podcast and it's just focused on learning composition. And, um, you know, I teach, uh, kind of the basics of composition on my website, but, uh, but what I've felt, um, I mean, I'm in California, uh, but I, I don't really have, um, you know, I didn't, I studied music a little bit in college, but switched to history and I spent seven years in the army, um, and when I got out, I felt like I really wanted to learn more. So I started reading a lot of theory, uh, you know, started trying to teach myself. And what I realized is I really need to connect with composers who are, you know, have a lot to teach and a lot to say. Um, and so that's what I'm doing. I'm just I'm reaching out to um, composers and theorists and teachers. Where do you live? Um, I'm in Thousand Oaks, California, so about, uh, you know, 30, 40 miles north of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. Um, and uh, do you uh, do you have people who subscribe to your uh, podcast? Is that what it is? Yeah, you can subscribe on iTunes and basically download on your phone and listen, or you can listen online. Um, mm-hmm. And um, you're actually the second interview I've done. I, I interviewed um, Robert Yerdingen, who has done a lot of research on uh, Partimenti and kind of the way um, Mozart, Beethoven, and Haydn would have been taught to compose in their day. Um, and I'm interviewing William Kaplan, who's written a lot on musical form, uh, next week. And, um, 
yeah, I just, I, I love learning about composition and, and, you know, speaking to composers. So I figured other people would want to hear those, those conversations as well. What were you doing in the army? Um, I flew helicopters. So I was a scout helicopter pilot. I see. Well, you know, I was in the army too. And, um, at the end I was able to start the seventh army symphony orchestra. Yeah, yeah, no, I read about that and, and yeah. how uh, Eisenhower thought that it was uh, one of the most important things for German-American relations after the that's war. That's right, that's right. How was that and, experience? Uh, was that? Oh, it was great. Uh, it lasted for 11 years. I was only in the Army for two, but mm-hmm. uh, the orchestra lasted for 11 years until the draft stopped. Yeah, wow. But it was, it was a great experience. It only lasted for nine months, but, uh, I mean, for me... Uh, I started it, and then nine months later, I was uh, uh, I was out of the army. So yeah. that's I didn't want to stay. They wanted me to become a captain and stay for another four years, but yeah. I felt I needed to get out. <laughs> so you were a anyway, lieutenant at the time? No, I was a corporal. Oh wow! So they were they were just gonna and Mr. Mr. Eisenhower, or General Eisenhower, uh, after we did the first concert to. Uh, wish him farewell. You know, he was going to be president of uh, Columbia University and then became president of the United States. But mm-hmm. we played, the first concert we played was for his farewell concert. Wow. And he came back afterwards and he said, you know, the only thing I don't like about you is uh, your uniform. I was wearing an eye jacket. We all were. <laughs> yeah. and so And so he said, you come to my study tomorrow and I will have my tailor make you a real uniform that fits a conductor. So I went to his study the next day, and he had his tailor make me a white general's uniform with corporal stripes. Wow, that is an incredible story. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, be well, and I wish you lots of luck on your podcast. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Well, thanks again for joining me on another episode of the Art of Composing podcast. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Samuel Adler as much as I did. If you are interested in learning to compose music, go to artofcomposing.com and check out the resources there. I've got a ton of stuff. Obviously, we've got the podcast. I've got YouTube videos. I've got free courses. I've got paid courses, just about anything that you need if you are on this journey of learning composition. So that pretty much does it for today. And as Samuel Adler said, keep composing.